has told every lightning bolt where we should go. Foreseen heavenly storehouses laid in the snow. Good morning, everybody. I just wanted to give you the official coronavirus handshake from the stage. So everybody give me an elbow. Ready? One, two, three. For the next four weeks, okay? Okay. All right. It's all yours, Tom. How do you, how do you follow that? Um, um, anyway, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad you're here. Um, I, uh, I was blessed with the honor this last week of accepting the role of um, uh, volunteering to head up the Easter egg hunt, uh, which is April 11th. So, so what that um, so what that means is that um, I'm going to guilt you into signing up out on the reception desk out there. Feel free to sign up. I'm going to send out an email to everybody that does this week, and and we'll get uh, we'll get things rolling, and and uh, it'll be another big success because uh, I'm just going to get out of the way and let everybody else do stuff. But um, anyway. So that's going on, and we do need, for that, we do need more uh, candy, I think individually wrapped uh, pieces of candy that'll fit inside plastic eggs, and then uh, some more plastic eggs as well. If, if that's something you could do, uh, God bless you. Um, there is going to be a baptism later this month on uh, March 29th, but on March 22nd, there's a baptism class, and I think it's right after church. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, uh, please do that. But if, if you need to ask, um, you can ask one of the elders or, um, or, or email Megan. There you go. Thank you, Steve. Steve, do you want to give it? Okay. And then this is, this is kind of just a special, um, I'm going to embarrass her, but this is kind of a um, special announcement for me. But in a week, uh, my daughter Rose leaves for the Dominican Republic. Uh, on a mission trip, and the common fears with that, again, which is the coronavirus and all those different things, but we just pray for her safety, and, and if you would do the same, uh, and for her leading. She was there two years ago and made some incredible friendships and, and connections with kids down there, so uh, if, you could, if you could pray for her this week, we'd, we'd appreciate that. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to you guys. To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Did you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. To whom will you compare me, he says, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You are amazing, God. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing. Uh, it's a great privilege for me to introduce to you one of my uh, very dear friends, uh, and he and his wife, Darlis, uh, have been a very much of a fixture in my wife and I's lives for the past 30 plus years, almost 30 years now, uh, since we first took a church in Belmont, Iowa. I got a letter from a guy who was working on a dairy farm as a dairy consultant, and he and his, he was going out into the country and churches singing uh, gospel, putting on gospel concerts because God has, gift, has gifted him with a, uh, is it a baritone voice, Dar? Baritone. So I, without further ado, I want to introduce uh, Darwin Anderson, who's the director of International Messengers, which is a mission agency. So give him a warm hand of welcome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Darwin one question and then let him take it. Darwin, what is it that you're, is the main focus of your ministry, and does it need to be on? Probably not. Yeah. All right, great. All right. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Uh, we, uh, we have been blessed 
through the years with Steve and Marla's relationship, uh, and uh, we're just very grateful for them in our lives. Um, uh, what we do, uh, Darlis and I run a small run. Yeah, that's the wrong word in ministry. We, uh, we serve a small ministry up in Clear Lake, Iowa, uh, called International Messengers, and it's about 230, 240 missionaries uh, that work around the world and in the U.S. We've got missionaries on Indian reservations here up in Canada, um, and then we've got missionaries in 27 other countries. And uh, uh, unique things about us, we uh, were a mission of the second chance, and so uh, missionaries who have been burned or hurt or gotten in a deep hole in another mission can come to us and uh, we rehab them um, and put them back on the fields. And then, and then the international part, we've got uh, 21 nationalities of missionaries on our staff. Uh, so very, very international group, a little over 50% uh, people from non-North American backgrounds. And, uh, Dar and I serve them. We've got uh, training centers uh, in Libby, Montana a three-month program for missionary candidates to go through and get some rough edges knocked off of them uh, before they go to the field. We've got one of those in uh, Odessa, Ukraine uh, for the Central and Eastern Europe area. And then we've got uh, one of those in, uh, in Egypt, uh, Alexandria, Egypt for the Middle East and, and that area. Uh, sometimes we run that one out of Beirut if it's quiet enough there. So. So anyway, we've got uh, three training centers. Uh, Dar and I are just on the way home from teaching a small class out in Libby on persevering in ministry. Uh, that's kind of our specialty coming out of the dairy business. And so uh, we know a little bit about perseverance from that. So we've been at this uh, 30 years this year, and God called us out of the dairy industry. And so we live out of a suitcase and, uh, and serve our missionary staff and try to build Build trust with them, that's kind of our main job, is to build trust with our missionaries so that when they need us, uh, they'll trust us enough to let us care for them. So that's, uh, that's what we do. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Thanks, bro. Okay. Uh, they're uh, choice servants of the king. Uh, I'd encourage you to spend a little time after the service maybe rubbing some shoulders, uh, rubbing shoulders with them or elbows and uh, just hear their heart. Um, they uh, serve the king with reckless abandon. Uh, that's how I would say it. Uh, they do not travel thousands and thousands of miles to go on vacation. In fact, don't talk to Darwin about your latest vacation adventure uh, because he does not go to the exotic places of the world like R Rodham, Poland, uh, to see the sights. He goes to share the gospel of, with, with people, and that's his heart and passion. And we are blessed uh, to have rubbed shoulders and been friends these many years and we count it a great privilege and I ask you now to join me as we look to our great God and I pray dear father for Dar and Darlis that your spirit would meet them and sustain them and strengthen them as they have poured out and poured out and poured out I pray that they would be filled up by your spirit's work I pray for us as we continue to worship this great God that we have been singing about that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And I ask that you'd take these truths, which I feel so inadequate to, to speak about, Lord, because I know how I have seen the reflection of these things in my life and how far short I fall of the standard to which you call us. And yet I know that by your grace and your grace alone, you will produce these things within us for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. I pray for you to speak to us, that you would allow us to let the truths of the word wash over our souls, that you'd take whatever it is that we 
hear and you would translate it into what we need for your glory and the gain of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What a interesting thing, you know, you come to church and I'm going to be preaching a little bit, I'll get about mercy here, and things just fall apart sometimes, you know, like the keyboard doesn't work, like what's that about? I mean, it was working all through practice, you know, and so then when we come to, to do the service, it's like it doesn't work. You know, and it drives our sound people nuts, it drives the keyboardists nuts, and it's like, this is crazy. But you know what? There, there are forces at work that we don't see that seek to undermine whatever it is that God is trying to do. And so that happens sometimes, and we're going to learn a little bit about extending mercy and grace uh, when it's like, oh, wow, what's that all about? Several years ago, I saw this uh, commercial on TV about Bowflex. Now, you may not have known what a Bowflex is, but a Bowflex is this workout machine, and there was this really sculpted guy who, you know, obviously used Bowflex. I, I, actually, I doubt if he used Bowflex. He probably didn't get that way lo- using Bowflex, but maybe maybe a little Botox, but not Bowflex. Anyhow, he was, uh, he was sculpted, and he, he was saying, okay, here, if, if you do this, if you work out, I can, I can make you look like this in 20 minutes a day, three times a week, if you use Bowflex. And the, 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 the body you dream of, it can be yours if you just embrace, embrace this. And the portrait of physical health that was presented to us through the Bowflex commercial finds its spiritual parallel in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. The picture, the portrait of spiritual health that the Lord portrays for us in in the Beatitudes is a parallel to that, that commercial. It's a picture of what the true believer looks like. And it's given by Jesus for a lot of different reasons, but I think at least in it's given to inform us of our spiritual identity. These are who we are if we're a child of God. And they're also not just given uh, for our spiritual identity, but they're intended to illumine our spiritual deficiencies, to inspire us to progress in our faith, in our walk with God, so that we become more and more like Jesus, and to invite those who don't know Christ to enjoy the promises that are given in this passage of Scripture. You see, the Lord rests each and every beatitude, I think, on the foundation of the preceding one. So that we looked last week at blessed are the poor in spirit. And so poverty or spiritual bankruptcy is the seedbed, seedbed in, in which true sorrow for sin grows, which is sorrow for sin, mourning is the second one. And then this spiritual poverty, which is our, our, our dependence upon God and our brokenness before God, become the environment and the, the produce within us this idea of gentleness, this idea that we're not demanding, but we're submissive and, and, and supportive. And these are traits that believers possess, but we're supposed to progress in. We possess them, but we're supposed to be growing in them so that when the world sees us, the light of Christ that shines through us works in the dark world so that they bring glory to God. They end up glorifying God in the process. So I invite you to turn, if you will, in your Bibles or on your phone or in your, on your device or you can reach underneath the seat in front of you. You can find it in Matthew chapter 5. And the next three character traits of kingdom saints upon which kingdom conduct is built. So these are traits, con, uh, character upon which the conduct that we flesh out in the kingdom is built. They are intended to communicate what we truly possess. They're intended to convince us of our need for the Spirit's work, which shouldn't take long, but to the Spirit's work to to progress in these things. And they're to compel us to make progress, and then 
they'll call those people who don't know Christ to say, hey, this is, this is what it means to be a Christian, and these are the promises that are associated with what it means to be a Christian. Hey, come on. Join the party and join the family. I'm reading Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, through the first eight verses. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up onto the mountains. And after he sat down, the disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Three more characteristics of kingdom saints. And the first one is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed means to be approved. To be favored by God. Now what does it mean to hunger and thirst? It's a description of those feelings or the response that we have to basic human needs. It's a, a hunger and thirst describes our physical response. And these are deeply felt responses to the lack of food and water common in the first century. We, we really don't know, most of us don't know what it really is to be really hungry or to be really thirsty. But if you lived in Palestine in the first century and other places of the world, you know on a regular basis what it is to be hungry and in a desert what it is to be thirsty. And these things motivate, our, they occupy and dominate and they motivate our actions. They dominate our minds and motivate our actions. I remember as a, a college student, I went with a, a buddy of mine and his nephew out to northwestern Wyoming, and we spent nine days in the backwoods hiking and backpacking and eating uh, trail mix and, uh, you know, stuff you poured in water and boiled it, and then all of a sudden you had, you know, what was supposed to be called food. And at the end of that nine days... All I could think about was getting some pizza and drinking some milk. And that dominated my thinking and motivated my actions. And Jesus says, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the Bible takes the intensity of these physical feelings and applies them to our quest for spiritual truth. In Isaiah chapter 55 Verses 1 and 2, and I think we have that on the screen. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. It's taking these physical characteristics and applying them to spiritual truths. So just as we hunger and thirst... As, as hunger and thirst for food and water drives us to find satisfaction for our physical needs and sustain life. So hunger and thirst for what our soul longs for motivates or should motivate us to find what will give us spiritual life. And Jesus identifies the object of our hunger and thirst. What does he say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. What does he mean? Hunger and thirst to, to feel spiritually what we feel physically when we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. He's not talking about positional righteousness. That We don't hunger and thirst for positional righteousness because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God, no, not one. Nobody's hungering for spiritual righteousness. And if we're a believer, our position is already secured. We have righteousness in Christ. He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, if you're here, and you're trusting in Jesus Christ, and his death alone is a payment for your sin, because you know you're a messed up person, and you need Jesus. 
You are righteous, positionally, with God. What he's talking about here, I think, is practical righteousness. What does it mean to live out our righteousness? He's talking about holiness. Life in conformity with God's will and consistent with who we are as children of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. If we walk in the light. If we don't walk in the light, then we're not his children. He says that in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We can't say that we're one of his children if we don't walk as he walked. And so he's calling us to hunger and thirst for righteous living. Negatively, this means that we, we, we long to be free from sin. We long to be free in a couple of ways. Free from the power of sin. That Sin, we know, I don't know about you, but I, I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior. But I feel the pull to sin. I, I feel the power of sin that more often than I want... I, I'm drawn to the things I know I shouldn't want and do. And so negatively, this pursuit of righteousness, this hungering and thirsting, is to be free from the sin which the writer of Hebrews says so easily entangles us. We get snared up. We get caught up in, in, in this sin. And free from the desire of sin which disturbs us. Romans chapter 7, Paul said this in verses 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wanted, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if you are, I mean, most of us can identify with that. That, that's what I want. But So this pursuit of righteousness, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, negatively means I want to be free of that. Positively, it means that I want to live rightly. I want to do what God wants. It's a longing to be further along in my walk with God than I am presently. I remember as a young boy, I... There was this, well, I don't, the song wasn't there, but later on, it's a really dorky song, but it's called I Want to Be Like My Daddy. It's kind of got this uh, annoying little tune, but it's, but I remember as a, as a boy, I wanted to be like my daddy. Physically. My dad's six foot two, he was athletic, he was popular, he had all kinds of, I mean, people came to my dad, you know, my dad didn't have to make friends, people sought my dad out. I wanted to be like my daddy. Well, I wonder this morning, do you and I want to not be physically like God, because we can't be, but do we spiritually long to be like our father? I want to be like my dad. Do I, do I spiritually want to be hunger and thirst to be like my father in his character and in his conduct in doing what God wants me to do? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long for living correctly themselves, but also to see right living in the culture. It, it concerns us when we don't see people living like that. But here's the kicker. God says that the key to righteousness, or the key to happiness, which is another way to translate blessed, but it's not the way that we think of it, because when we think of happiness, it's dependent upon our circumstances. But the, the key to being blessed is to be righteous, but the world wants to be happy without righteousness. Understand the difference? God says that you're blessed if you're righteous, but the world wants blessed but not righteous. No, we want to be happy without being holy. That's the way of the world. And so the world seeks to satisfy its hunger and slake its thirst for to be happy through riches and possessions and popularity and power and pleasure. Feel good. Do good. Make yourself a name and then you'll be happy. The world is treating the pain of their emptiness 
without dealing with the disease of being estranged from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are already in a position of righteousness and they desire to be practically more righteous like God. But the world says, no, I don't want the righteous part. I just want the happy part. And Jesus says you can't have, and here's the interesting thing, if we're pursuing happiness without righteousness, we don't get either one. We don't get either one. We don't get blessed, and we don't get righteous. The problem is that we fall into that too. It's not a lack of happiness. It's a lack of holiness that prevents us from experiencing God's favor. And if you're here this morning and you know you're not really, you don't know about this Jesus, or you're not really sure about Christ, you have never really committed your life to Christ, what, what God would want for you is to be right with Him. See, I can't be righteous in my practice until I'm righteous in my person. And the only way to be righteous in my person is to surrender and say, Lord, I am living life on my own, in my own power, in my own strength. I'm captain of my own ship. Thank you very much. I don't really realize or feel that I need you very much. But you need to turn from that, surrender, and submit to God and acknowledge that Jesus Christ paid the debt that you deserve to pay when he died on the cross and to trust him and surrender your life to him. And then you will be made righteous. Paul said that... We are ambassadors for Christ. So, God, we're entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Are you reconciled to God? If you're not reconciled to God, then you're not righteous in a position, and therefore you cannot be righteous in your practice. But if we're righteous in our position, we can be righteous in our practice, knowing that it is belief in Jesus. See, what what are we hungering and thirsting for? Happiness. What did Jesus say is the sustenance that will provide us with being blessed. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Belief in Christ is the sustenance, is the sustenance that eternally satisfies our deepest need, which is to be in right relationship with God. Only in right relationship with God am I really fully satisfied, and that's it. problem for us as Christians is we copy the world. And we often fall into this trap of pursuing happiness. We think we can become happy without being righteous. And we seek to satisfy the hunger in our soul with unspiritual things like recognition. You know, I come to church every Sunday. I actually am an important person in church. You know, I mean, I, I'm on the board, or I have a position, or don't you see me serving? Or I give, you know. And we feel like, okay, if I do those things, well, you know, as my Sunday school teacher used to say, going into a garage doesn't make you a car any more than going into a church makes you a Christian. It's not about our outward appearance. But we pursue that. We also pursue information. I, if I just know enough, I want to know about God. I want to have this intellectual awareness. You know, you should, I listen to a lot of podcasts, you know. And I, I, I read a lot of blogs. I, I mean the best ones, the best Christian blogs, you know. So through, associ- through this information, I'm going to somehow become satisfied in my soul through Domination. I'm just going to be in charge. I'm calling the shots here. You know, every church has their power, power bosses. You know, they're, they're the ones in charge. And they, they have the purse strings or they have the connections. And they're going, to, they're going to make it happen. Or if it doesn't, if they don't make it happen, it ain't happening. And they kind of think that's good. And so they feel that's the satisfaction. Or it could be gratification. And church, here's, here's the challenge for us, especially in Urbandale, Iowa. We, we pursue comfort. I mean, that's one of our greatest priorities is comfort. And convenience. You know, does it bother you now that Hy-Vee's not open 24 hours? How could they? I mean, I might, I, I might just happen to be up at 3 a.m. and need to make a, you know, a run for some goldfish. Snacks. You know? 
folks, you, you got not, not a clue. When my wife was pregnant with our first child, we lived 40 miles from the nearest store that stayed open until 9 p.m. Oh, honey, I want some shrimp. Uh, ain't happening. You know? Oh, I just would love to have some mashed potatoes. No. You know, deal with it, honey. I'm sorry. I can't change it. This is the way it is. We want comfort. We want convenience. We want safety. Okay, I'm going to pick on the Vanderlins. Go, girl. Dominican Republic, go for it. You know? Yeah, there's a virus out there. Uh, there's all kinds of viruses. There's all kinds of diseases. There's all kinds of bacteria. You wouldn't even want to believe. Stick your nose in a Petri dish sometime and come back in a week and see what's there. It'd scare you half to death. You want to live scared? Live scared. God doesn't want us to live that way. No, I'm not saying turn your brain off and throw your brain out the window and, you know, you should spit in your hand and shake everybody's hand. No, I'm not saying that at all. But... Comfort, convenience. I got this young couple. I told you a few weeks ago about this young couple that was serving in a, in a third world country, and they lost a baby over there. Uh, you know, breaks your heart. And now they've been back in the States for several years. they got three little ones. They're going back. Oh, mom and dad are just all paranoid and freaked out, and I just want to go up and kick them in the rear and say, look, your kids are going out to serve Jesus. And they're not worried about their safety. They're not worried about their convenience. They're not worried about their comfort. So why don't you just give them the money? You got it. Quit whining and start praising God that they want to pursue righteousness. They want to do what God wants them to do. They want to shine the light of Jesus in a dark world so that other people can go go with them to glory. And I think it's great. And it's a pursuit of righteousness as believers. The interesting thing is, believers, we have this position of righteousness, and we practice righteousness, but we're, we're just not fully satisfied yet. You understand this side of glory? We just taste what God has promised. What does he say? And they will be filled. Earlier this week, I went to, I went to see our daughter in Ames, and I went to this restaurant called Cornbread. It's a barbecue place in Ames, and it's, it's good food. And I ate, and I was satisfied. But you know what? By supper time, I was hungry. You see, this side of glory, we're, 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 we're satisfied completely in Christ. That's Colossians 2, 9 and 10. And yet we still are hungry because we haven't fully realized all that God has promised for us in glory. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 6, it talks about that. We only, uh, we only sample it now. We're, we'll get the full thing then. So how do we stir up this hunger and thirst? First of all, I think uh, these are just bullet points. This is not, you know, a scripture that supports it. But admit our hunger and thirst for the wrong things. What am I hungering and thirsting for that is not righteousness? Admit my hunger and thirst. Name it. I want comfort. That's my primary thing. God, forgive me for making comfort my priority. God, forgive me for making convenience. God, forgive me for making association, domination, participation my goal in life. And repent of it and and seek the Lord. And remember, I said last week, we're helpless apart from the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit is what we're after, and we need it. Secondly, act on what we know. Just do what we know. Say, well, I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, do what God says. We want to be righteous in our practice, then we must know what God wants us to do. Can't live God's way if I don't know God's way. You know, we started this year with saying, challenging people to be in their Bible reading program. Not just to be in a Bible reading program. It's not just so, well, yeah, I checked that off, checked that off. You know, I'm reading six chapters a day, and, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. Well, good for you. Does it mean anything? I asked the guys in my Timothy team, I said, you pray for me because I'm reading the Word, but sometimes I'm just getting nothing. I need God's Spirit to open it up so that it means something to me. So you act on what we know. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what God calls us to do, so let's seek first the kingdom of God. And then ask God to give us a hunger for righteousness. It's interesting in the Psalms how often the psalmist says, Teach me your way, O Lord. Let me know your path. 
You ever pray that? Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord God, with all my heart and glorify your name forever for you have delivered my soul from Sheol and showered me with loving kindness. Psalm 86, verses 11 through 3. Psalm 25, verses 3 and 4. Teach me, or 4 and 5. Teach me your way. I will walk in your truth. This is pray for. Blessed are the merciful, he says. Blessed are the merciful. This is verse 7. What does mercy mean? Not mercy me, that's a group. What does mercy mean? Well, there's different variations of it, but it can mean pity with action. It's compassion. That's one form of it. I'm going to give you another twist on it because that's with regard to what we do to help people in need. We have pity. We have compassion upon them. Yeah, some of you have seen, and this is a, a very cultural reference, so it's a classic Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Okay? And in the movie, George Bailey is a banker during a, a very difficult economic time. And he just got married, and he, he, he got like $2,000 for his wedding. And there is a, a run on the banks, which means that people were scared, so they went to the banks to draw out their money. They, they wanted to get their money from the bank. Well, the, money, the bank didn't have that much money, and so George Bailey stands up, and he, he lined the customers up one by one, and they came to him and says, how much do you need? He took his wedding money, and he started giving his people the money. Because he had compassion on them. Because he empathized with their position. Because he understood what was going on in their life. A proper embrace of the preceding Beatitudes brings us to an acute awareness of our own helplessness. Our own hopelessness. Our own state before God. And without God, our, our own poverty of spirit. Sorrow over our own sin. Our own absence of being demanding and controlling. Wanting to pursue righteousness. Brings us to a, a point and produces what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says or describes as an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, and the outcast, and all who were tortured by anxiety. Only in Christ are we able to see people as helpless and hopeless and hurting victims of the enemy. That, that stirs us. It should. Now, I would confess, I'm not a mercy person, okay? I'm like, get her done. And, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But, you know, the more I see what God has done for me, the more I understand how desperately I have nothing to give him. How I see my own sinfulness when I understand that he, how demanding and controlling and obnoxious I can be. And how I want to pursue righteousness. I, I, oh, there's more compassion towards those who are hurting. And so there are two categories of victims I want us to think about. First of all, we're to express pity on the victims of the enemy who are in need of assistance. This is the pity, the compassion. We express pity. They need assistance. Some of you remember, if you've read the Bible, the story of the Good Samaritan. He shamed the religious leaders because he showed compassion on the person who had been beaten and robbed. He showed compassion. That's what he's talking about. I want you to look at Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. This is an interesting twist on it. Or did I have that? Yeah. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, or do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Compassion. James chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion to visit the poor and the widows in their distress. Yeah, okay. How's that for pouring it out. In a fallen world, people get hurt. And people are hurting unpleasant effects of sin. And it's our privilege as believers in Christ to enter into their pain with them and to show and walk with them through what they're hurting. It's our privilege. 
because we have been given this pity and compassion by the Lord to extend mercy as those who have received mercy. That's what God's call on our life is. And so, you know, to bring help and healing and hope to the hurting. Because I've been helped. Because I've been given hope. Because God is bringing healing to my life only through the work of Christ. And so we have people who become foster parents because they realize that to no fault of their own, they're are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions around the world of children whose parents could give a rip about them. Or they, they, they adopt those who have no understanding of what it is to be loved because they're just let loose on, on their own. We give money and give food to help with the food pantry for people who are disadvantaged, who need a, a leg up because they don't know how they're going to make ends meet. We volunteer, some do, or you could, at Freedom for Youth, where Bob works. I mean, they're working with kids and, and students who have nothing and whose home lives are a mess. You talk to Bob afterwards, and you give hope and help because you care about them. Some of us in the church here have been very helpful with those who are new to the community, new to the country, helping them with their citizenship stuff, helping them with finding a job, helping them with just a bank or a translating. And I know we had one, uh, we have people helping. Out. The census is coming. <laughs> and some of you, are, even those of us who live in this country, are kind of going, what is all this paperwork? I don't understand. Help them. Compassion for those who are hurting. Secondly, not only do we extend pity to those in need of assistance who are victims of the enemy, but we extend pardon to the victims of the enemy in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness is mercy. That's the other definition of mercy, and I, you'll hear me say it again. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Not getting what I deserve. So on one hand, we're helping those who need of assistance who, through no fault of their own, are in a desperate state. But now we're in, in challenge to extend mercy in forgiving those who really don't deserve it. Matthew chapter 18, you can read it later, but it's a parable about the, uh, the slave who owed his master an inordinate amount of money. Right? Could never pay it off. And the master says, okay, you got to pay up. I can't pay up. Okay, so I'm going to sell your wife, sell your kids, and use that money to pay. Oh, please, 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 he begged. And the master forgave him. But that slave, the forgiven slave, had somebody who owed him just a small pittance. And he was unwilling to forgive that person. And so we get to the punchline in Matthew 18, verse 33. You have that. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? ask you this morning, um, how do you respond to your unreasonable boss, to your irresponsible employees, to your demanding parents, to your obnoxious neighbor? to our insensitive spouse, to the students who are causing me grief. How do we respond to those people? Do we respond with anger? How do we respond to a rebellious child? Do we see them as helpless and hopeless? And do, you see, do we see them as just where we would be except for God's grace? Why would we expect them to be different than they are? Not excusing their sin, not excusing what they're doing, but extending mercy, forgiveness, not giving them what they deserve. <laughs> what they deserve is punishment. But, hello, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and be kind and tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You want to be like the slave? All in for being forgiven, but don't ask me to forgive anybody. 
Don't ask me to forgive the person who hurt me, offended me, hurt my children, hurt my spouse, offended those. No, don't ask me to do that. Yes, I am. That's what God says. God calls us to do that, to, to be merciful. Only by God's grace can we say, Jesus, as Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's only in Christ. How do we do that? I don't know exactly, but here are some thoughts to, to help move us along that way. Ponder, uh, he said, ponder God's uh, mercy towards us. I mean, think about it. You know, we, we break bread every Sunday, which is an opportunity to ponder the mercy of God. What he has done for us in Christ, we don't deserve. We ponder that mercy. Uh, practice it as a conscious choice. Make a choice. Be kind and tenderhearted. It doesn't come naturally. It's the Spirit of God working. You've got to choose to be kind and care. And then, you know, it's interesting. Then we should pray for mercy. I like Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice and to what? Love mercy. God, help me to be more merciful. Be more merciful. And this mercy through forgiveness is, forgiveness is extended. It's not like I can't receive God's forgiveness. Uh, you can read the Lord's Prayer, and I've, I've mentioned this before, Matthew chapter uh, 6. Forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our trespasses as we, what, forgive those who trespass against us. He's not saying that if you're, 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 you will not be forgiven unless you forgive. What he's saying is if you are forgiven, you will forgive. Forgiven people forgive. I'll quote Lloyd-Jones. He put it this way. For the grace of God is such that when it comes into our hearts with forgiveness, it makes us merciful. If I forgive, I am forgiven. Only forgiven people will truly forgive. And then finally he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Heart, that's the center of who we are. That's where our emotions are. Our mind is. Our, our resolve is. That's the essence of who we are. And there's two ways to be pure that I'm going to mention. There may be more than that. But first is it's clean. I just have no stain in my life, okay? I'm clean, without blemish, without spot. And secondly, is single-minded in my devotion. I'm pure. I'm pure in my heart is what I, my conduct and character, and then I'm pure in my devotion, undivided. Purity of heart isn't natural. You know Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That didn't come natural to me. I'm not, I'm not pure in heart. I'm not clean and I'm not in single-minded in devotion. But pure in heart describes someone who's undefiled in their conduct and they're undivided in their commitment. They're holy. Lloyd-Jones says, This is a person who lives to the glory of God in every respect of their life. Their desire is to know, love, and serve God. Some of you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was tempted, 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 tempted by the, uh, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. He was tempted by his wife, lured him. And what is it? Genesis 39, 9 says that uh, he resisted. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Day after day after day, she kept luring and tempting him. And he says, no, I can't do that. How can I sin against Almighty God? Purity of heart stands in contrast. And this is the thing. You know, in our culture, in Jesus' culture, external piety, that was the big thing. No, this is talking about your heart. It's not just about what you do on the outside. It's who we are on the inside. And that's pure of heart is to seek to please him. It stands in stark contrast to, to the way of the world. We're rescued from the kingdom of darkness and possess a new heart and we're resolved to live in submission to God. I don't know about you. I know I'm rescued. <laughs> I got that part down. Just not sure how resolved I am to submit every part of my life to God and live for Him and resist what opposes God. I, I'm fascinated by the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he lived during uh, World War II, a believer. He committed himself uh, to, to please God, but he also committed himself to resist what opposed God, which meant that he went up against Hitler and the Nazis. In his mind, they opposed God. How do I cooperate with the Holy Spirit to cultivate purity in my heart? Um, 
couple suggestions, and your, your outline has been modified, so if you have an outline from the bulletin, uh, I took the liberty of adding a few things, which shouldn't surprise you, I guess, at this point. But first of all, we need to realize our depravity. How can I be pure unless I understand how desperately I, I move away from purity? In Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 10, you know, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Repent. James 4, 8. He said, submit to God, resist the devil. But no, that's verse, verse 7. Verse 8, verse 7, I'm going to get it. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee. But verse 8, you have it on the screen? It says, draw near to God. This is the repentance part. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See the junk and lay it out before God and ask God to get rid of it. Repent, and we turn from it. I ask you, just think about it for a minute. What, what am I presently excusing? What are you excusing in your life? Greed, jealousy, pornography, selfishness, pride, prejudice, dishonesty. You know, what is it in my life that I'm just excusing? No, I've got to deal with it. Request a pure heart. This is Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, the psalmist says. I need that. God created me a clean heart. Oh, God. Remain obedient to what we know. <laughs> Just do what you know and resist what's against God. And then finally, reflect on the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. See, Psalm 24, verse, verses 3 and 4, in Psalm 24, he's talking about, you know, who's going to ascend to the hill, the holy hill? Well, who is the one? The one who is pure in heart. Hey. A better day awaits us. A better day awaits us. For they shall see God. That's the promise. Wait a second. God told Moses nobody can see God and live. Yet we're told we're going to see God. How's that work? Well, I'm going to give a shot at it. I'm not sure. I don't have the definitive word on it. But in one way, we, we see God now. We see God in nature. I don't know about you, but I woke up this morning and I was listening to the birds sing. I still haven't figured out what this one bird is. I, I don't know whether it's a mockingjay or whatever it is, but it just makes the highest shrilled sound. It's just beautiful. Yesterday I was sitting in our living room and I looked out and a bald eagle was flying down through the, the trees. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I see God every day in the beauty of his creation. We see God in history. We sense and know God in his presence with us in the difficulties that we go through and even the joyous times. We sense and we know God in the challenges that we face, in the power that we see him working. I was in the hospital Monday visiting a, a gal who had a it's called a hemorrhagic stroke, which means that uh, it's not a, a, a TIA or something like that which you can recuperate from, but this is like the... the, the, the the vessels hemorrhaged, and the blood went into her brain, and they were telling her, you know, basically, at that point, they told the, the kids, basically, she's pretty much done. She's probably a vegetable, you know, maybe not going to live very long, whatever. She's uh, up walking around now and uh, talking to people and eating and, you know, carrying on because God knows more than any physician. He has more power than any physician because he is God. So we see this, his presence, and we see it in glory. We shall see it in glory. This is 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse 2, and Revelation 22. Do, I don't know about you, but I never thought much, I don't think much about the fact that right now I'm in preparation to see the king. Right now I'm preparing to enter the throne room of heaven and see the king of kings. Now, what happened when Isaiah did that? <laughs> Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm ruined. I'm done. I'm a dead man. 
for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Holy, holy, holy. And we're, get, we're getting ready. If we know Jesus, we're going we're gonna to walk in. I don't think we're going to be high-fiving Jesus. I think we're going to be on our face before the king. But we're going to see him as those who are blessed, favored, loved, cherished, not because of us, because he sees us through the blood of Christ who made it possible for us to enter into this place. Oh, glorious thought. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Which the Bible says we can't do and live this side of glory. That's an amazing thing. What a motivation for purity is that I'm in preparation to see the King of Kings. You know me, you're here this morning, and maybe you don't know Christ and maybe you've been pursuing things that you thought would satisfy pleasure and pursuits of uh, money and fame and fortune and possessions. And I, I just want to ask you, how's that working out? You know? Or is it always need for a little more? You know, it's kind of like, well, I got this much, but I really would be happy if I had that much. Or I, I have a name, I've made a name for myself, but if I just had this bigger name or this more popular, that would be better. You know, I feel like I'm a nobody. Yeah, you are. We all are. Well, here's the deal. You can be righteous. You can be merciful. You can be pure and see God. We all can. We just have to admit that apart from him, we can do nothing. Lord, forgive me for thinking I'm so great and I'm living in rebellion against you and I want to turn from my sin. I want to trust in what Christ did because he paid the price when he died on the cross so that I could be forgiven of all of my junk and that you would put me on this path of progressing in these very character traits of kingdom saints and I would experience the promises that God has given to me. And do it today. Don't wait. Just cry out and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I trust you as my Savior. You're here this morning. You know Jesus. How many of you have been in PE class where they were choosing up sides? You know? They're picking teams, you know, or at recess. Well, who gets picked? Or what's the basis for getting picked? Oh, this kid's really athletic. This kid's really strong. Oh, this kid's really popular, so I'm going to pick them so they don't pick on me. You see, God's not about that. It's not about that. He, we got nothing to give God. He picks us, and then the, the, what he chooses, the traits that he inculcates are so far contrary to what the world has. He's wanting us to cultivate, and he produces within us these things, which he wants us to be humble. Spiritual poverty, you know. The marks of those who follow God are the spiritually humble. i got nothing to give you, God. You're spiritually humble before him. That we are also the ones who are mournful. We grieve over our sins. We're gentle. God's working on me in that one, I hope. I'm praying. Because I'm not so gentle. And those who hunger are hungry get fed, get full, and the merciful, that they'll have pity, and the pure in heart will see God. This is what God's doing, and by the power of his spirit, he wants to produce it within us so we can bring glory to him forever. And as we break bread and drink the cup, we're remembering that he broke his body and shed his blood so that we could be righteous, so that we could receive mercy and extend mercy so that we could be pure in heart and see God. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I challenge you to take a few moments to get your heart right with God and then come and break bread with us to remember what God has done, to rejoice in what God has done, and then as we're reminded in the first service, which is very appropriate, resolve to serve God. Because what God has done for us is not just so we can sit and soak. It's so we can go and share and show the love of Christ. It's not just, oh, I can feel good because, you know, I'm in the kingdom now and God's really been good to me and I'm just going to sit here and be my Jesus person. 
Well, you be your Jesus person, but then get on your high horse and off your high horse, and we get out there and serve others and share Jesus with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Father, that you bring us to a point of seeing we're poor in spirit. We have nothing. You show us our sins so that we can grieve over it and the sins of the world. You produce within us gentleness because you're the model of gentleness, meek and lowly of heart. You work in our hearts, Father, to produce righteousness. Only a righteousness only comes from you. It's not something we can work up. Help us to be more practically righteous in our lives by your grace and work in our hearts that we would be merciful to those in need and merciful to those in need of assistance and in need of forgiveness. And I pray by your grace that you would work in our hearts, Father, to be pure people, holy before you. In our hearts, the promise that one day we'll see you. Take these, this time and, and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray in Christ's name.